What's your name? Joe Martinez. How many years did you play professional baseball? Uh, about nine and a half. What is your current job now? I am a vice president uh, in the commissioner's office, part of the baseball operations department. And more specifically, um, I am part of the on-field strategy team. So you are heavily involved in a lot of the experimental rules that we are seeing in minor league baseball these days. I am, yeah. All right. <laughs> Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, we're going to discuss a wide variety of rules. There's the strict enforcement of the pitch clock. There is a computer that calls balls and strikes in the Pacific Coast League. There is a challenge system of that ABS in the Florida State League. There's bigger bases. There's a maximum number of pickoffs per batter. There is a ban on the shift. It is fascinating stuff. And we're going to dive into the reasoning behind these rule changes, what the data is showing any possible unintended consequences, and a whole lot more. Joe Martinez is next on Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, you spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Joe, thank you so much for taking uh, time out of your day. I know that you are very busy. I get asked a lot of questions about this. Um, I'm fascinated by all of these different rule changes. I'm constantly talking to our players and coaches and other broadcasters and scouts. So again, th thank you for joining me for this. Yeah, happy to be on. All right, so let's take a big picture with all of these different rules. What is the overall purpose of testing out all of these different rules? Yeah, so that's a good question. And you know, I think everybody has their own idea of this, but, you know, the idea is to try to bring kind of the best version of baseball forward, right? The, the, the version that the fans like, the version that the players like, the, the version that we all fell in love with and, and, you know, really kind of built this relationship with the game of baseball. Um, and there's certain things that, that I think we all, we all like to see. Now, some of those things that we like to see sometimes – we don't see enough of in today's game, right. Based on, you know, the, uh, the front office influence in the game or just kind of how the game is played now. And, and some of the ways that a lot of really smart people have figured out or is, is more efficient to win more games. Uh, but maybe is not quite, you know, the version that, that we all like so much. So for instance, um, you know, when I was a kid, one of the, one of the players I loved watching growing up and I know it was a little bit before my time, but kind of early on too, was, was Ricky Henderson, right? And he was such an exciting player, right? Lead off home runs, you know, kind of a little bit of a hot dog in the outfield, but he also stole a ton of bases, right? And that's something that we don't see a lot of um, in the modern game because of, you know, a number of things, mostly, um, you know, with all the data we have, some very smart people have figured out that it's probably not a very good chance to take at, at certain times um, to try to steal a base, but, but that, that doesn't change that people like that that fans like that, that it's exciting, that it showcases athleticism, things like that. So 
you know, um, as a very specific example, but, you know, what, how do we kind of reintroduce some of that excitement, some of that athleticism back in the game? Well, Ricky Henderson was my favorite player and Tim Raines was probably my second favorite player. So <laughs> I, I, I can definitely relate to that and wanting to see more athleticism. The idea of the three true outcomes, that there's an overwhelming prevalence of just strikeouts and walks and that there's just not a lot of action um, also becomes part of it. Is, is that the, let, let me ask you this, who, who's kind of on the committee? Who's deciding this? It's not just Joe Martinez. Who are the different people who are involved in kind of thinking up these experimental rules and how that might change things? Yeah. I mean, it, that's a little bit of a complicated question, but I would say <clears throat> it's a, it's, it's definitely a much larger group. It's not me just, you know, coming up with ideas and seeing what works. Um, you know, I, th I think it's, it's pretty you know well known that um, the commissioner has, um, hired Theo Epstein to work with us, right? Kind of on a consultant basis. But so Theo's leading a lot of the kind of brainstorming around this, some of the analysis, um, trying to figure out kind of what's worth testing, um, things that have been tested. How has that gone? Is it worth kind of continuing with it? Where, you know, at what levels then do we, we, we test those rules? Um, so he's kind of leading a group of, of folks, including me and a number of other people in our office, both from kind of the more planning background and on-field baseball operations side, all the way through to kind of like the data heavy analytics, um, you know, side of things. So we have a very kind of like broad range of perspectives and I think skill sets of people that are involved in, in how we kind of manage this portfolio of rules. I'll, I'll kind of refer to it that way. All right. So let's get into different rules. I want to start with the pitch clock because I think the pitch clock has been the most noticeable um, throughout minor league baseball, in my humble opinion. And from what I'm reading, it feels like that's the closest to, to making it to the, to the major leagues. I'll start with the most basic question. What's the purpose of the pitch clock and why what's the, what are you trying to do with it? Yeah. So, you know, the way I see it is, is the pitch clock is, is to help improve pace of game. And while a lot of people, you know, point to like overall game time, right. It's gone from, you know, on average, say three hours to two hours and 35 minutes. Um, that's a nice kind of benefit, right? I think people like kind of crisper games, games that, that, that get done quicker. Uh, you can still get home in time to put the kids to bed at a reasonable time, things like that. Um, but I think the real benefit of it and, and why you see those shorter overall game times is because it cuts out a lot of the wasted time and a lot of the time in baseball games when nothing happens, right? The pitchers just kind of walking around the mound. Uh, the batters are out of the box playing with their batting gloves. Um, you know, it makes, it, it, it puts a, a timer on the game in those ways that it makes players, you know, continue to kind of get right back to action rather than wasting a lot of time, which draws out the games. And I think it hurts kind of the entertainment value of, of, of the game itself. The pitch clock actually began in 2015 and we noticed a dramatic difference. It was about 20 to 25 minutes. Games were shorter than they were before over the last six years, the umpire stopped enforcing it as much. I think a lot of players realized how they could manipulate the pitch clock both between innings and also uh, between pitches. So what was, what was told to the umpires about how to strictly enforce the pitch clock that changes things this year compared to say 2016 through 2021? Yeah. So, I, you know, it's, it's hard to say that the umpires stopped enforcing it. I think it's more the other uh, uh, element that you kind of noted there was that players found ways around it, right? There was, there were certain carve outs and, and kind of loopholes that could be exploited that, that made the rule just, kind of ineffective right so one instance of that is pitchers at any time could just step off the rubber and reset the clock um and if you can do that at any time i mean that's like in, in you know in in basketball if you had unlimited timeouts and every time the shot clock was running down you just call timeout and get a new shot clock right so um 
you know, I think the new or the newer version of the pitch timer rule that we're using this year. And we, and we started testing last year, the Cal league and the Arizona fall league um, tries to eliminate a lot of those loopholes, obviously within reason. Um, and what we're telling the umpires is, you know, we want them to be strict with how they enforce it. We want them to, you know, be very clear on, you know, what the rules are in every kind of situation. Obviously, you know, things continue to pop up that we have to address, like with any rule, uh, especially any new rule that comes up. Um, but, you know, I, I think they, I think they probably, you know, they, I know they're doing a great job now. I wasn't as closely involved in 2015. I'm sure they were doing a great job then too. Um, it's just a little bit different rule and, and how it's constructed. And one of the, the real goals of this newer version is to kind of eliminate those loopholes that were making the rule um, ineffective. One of the things I've noticed is just the consistency varies based on what city you're in, who the, who the operator is, right? I mean, whoever the pitch clock operator is, it's not a full-time job. It's someone who just likes baseball and works for the minor league team. When is the pitch clock supposed to start? And when is it supposed to stop? When does it hit zero, 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 and it's supposed to be an infraction? Yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously there's, there's some different situations, right. Between, between innings or between batters. Um, but just for some, you know, simplicity sake, talking about between pitches, the clock starts when the pitcher gets the ball back. So he has the ball in his glove. Um, and the catcher and the batter are in that circle around home plate, generally dirt circle. Obviously there's some turf fields where it might be turf, but, uh, you know, that that's when the clock should start. Um, and then the, the pitcher must deliver the pitch before the clock or begin his motion to deliver the pitch before the clock hits zero. Right. Um, and the batter has to be in the box with his eyes up on the pitcher with at least nine seconds remaining on that clock. So there is a responsibility both on the hitter and the pitcher, um, you know, to be ready and, and to begin, you know, delivering the pitch in the, in the pitcher's sake, um, you know, on time. Again, I, I've noticed that it's not always consistent, and that's part of human beings, um, le learning something new. And, and, I, and when I think about this going to the major leagues, I think about people believe in enough conspiracy theories that whoever the operator is is trying to help the home team, right, is making it a faster pitch clock for the visiting team and making it a slower pitch clock for, for the home team. Um, how, how do you get more consistency across the board in every city if, if and when this does continue? Yeah, I, I think, you know, at the major league level, there's a couple of things that work in your favor. One, there's just a lot more resources, right? Um, you only have 30 clubs rather than 120 right? in, in the minor leagues. That doesn't even consider like complex leagues. So I think you are going to be able to hire people who are a little bit more dedicated to, to doing that. Um, also, you can probably pay them a little bit more, which helps. Right. Um, and there'll be and there'll be more attention on it, right? So there, there'll be a higher level of, 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 of oversight on how those, those folks are performing, you know, how the clocks operated. And I think a lot of that inconsistency, you know, comes out of the game. I think we're, we're already like fairly consistent in the minor leagues. However, it's, it's going to be more difficult, right. Just for those reasons that, that, you know, both of us noted there, right. You don't have full-time people that are just clock operators. That's their full-time job. Um, and the level of oversight is a little bit more difficult because of, of there's 120 teams spread, spread across the country. Um, but you know, we are doing our best in the minor leagues to, to be as consistent as possible. We are talking to both the clock operators and the umpires, um, on a weekly basis. And sometimes even more frequently than that, um, as you know, issues pop up, we have the teams themselves, um, coaching staff, players, um, front office personnel reporting to us if they do notice a lot of those inconsistencies. So, you know, we'll continue to work on this and continue to refine it. 
Um, but I think in the major leagues, there's, you know, there's a much, um, there's a lot more confidence that things are going to be much more consistent and, and fair and similar to like you see in the NFL with, with the play clock or the NBA with the shot clock. Um, you know, there's still a human element involved, but, you know, I think we, we are much, much more likely to have very consistent um, operation and enforcement. So batters get essentially a timeout that they can use at any point during the at bat. Overwhelmingly, I see that batters use the timeout when there's two strikes. Are you all right with them overwhelmingly using their timeout when there's two strikes? Yeah, I think it just makes sense, right? If, if I was in that situation, I was playing the game, I'd save my time out until I really felt like I needed it. Um, you know, you waste one kind of frivolously and early and bad, and you get stuck in a situation where you feel like you need a breath. You now you don't have it, right? So um, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and if I was a hitter, I think I would do the same thing. There's a few um, examples that the, the players have cited to me or that I've cited as well that I want to kind of go by them. Um, I'll go by them. Um, let, let me read all of them, and then we'll kind of maybe break them down. Um, one, one was a pitcher who said, you know, he covers first base, you know, on, on a 3-1 and then by the time that he gets the ball back to the mound with the clock that's in between batters, he's down to less than 14 seconds already. Um, pitcher said that, you know, he slipped on the mound. He goes to get the mud out of his cleats um, and he gets called for violation because he wasn't ready in that situation. Um, hitter says the fastball's up and in, you know, kind of want to catch my breath or whatever, whatever, but I have to get back in the box. Um, and then catchers have said, okay, I lead off the next inning. I just got to finish squatting. I need to go in the dugout. I want to talk to my pitcher. I want to talk to my pitching coach. I want to get a drink of water. I need to take off my gear. I need to grab my bat. I need to get stretched and get ready. And that can be more difficult for a, for a catcher who's leading off um, the inning. Um, and so I guess it comes down to how much leeway do the umpires have to just kind of have a feel and leeway when certain situations come up like that. Yeah. So the umpires do have the ability to kind of manage the clock, but if they feel, for instance, I know you use the example of the catcher ending the inning on base. I believe, you know, well, when we have spoken to the umpires, we've told them, you know, to have some, have some feel if, if the catcher needs more time to get ready and the pitcher needs more time to throw pitches um, that the umpires should provide that. Uh, of course, the last thing we want is for anyone to feel rushed and be at a potential risk for, you know, elevated risk for any kind of injury or, or anything like that. So that is hundred percent, not our goal, nor is it the umpire's goal. That being said, um, you know, there are situations where players want more time, but don't necessarily need it. Um, and you find a lot of complaints in those areas too. Um, but it is, it is written into regulations. The umpires do have the power to um, reset the clock if they feel it is needed. Um, based on those those special circumstances, particularly if there, if there is anything that it could potentially be a, a you know a risk to to player health and safety, um, I will say in some of the other situations you noted, um, the player covering first base on a three one, there's a thirty second timer between between batters. Um, I think it's enough time to get back. However, if there was some reason why the the, the pitcher couldn't get back, um, there is some language in the regulations that says that the clock should start when the outs made and, and kind of players ready to resume or people or players are out of position. Um, umpires can reset the clock and, and make sure that everybody has enough time to get back into position and, and ready for play to resume. We don't want anything unnatural where players have to like sprint to positions just to get ready for the next batter, which I think a 30 second clock kind of allows for anyway. But, you know, the, if, if there are situations, we will adjust to that. Um, similarly, with a player, a pitcher cleaning out his cleats. Um, there is language there. Umpires do have power to grant more time and reset the clock if it is needed. 
Um, however, what we do want to avoid is pitchers using, you know, certain excuses like that, even if they're not like full excuses, maybe there's like kind of a reason to kind of habitually reset the clock or, or, or circumvent the rules, because then we get into a situation where, um, you know, the clock quickly falls into the category of being ineffective. And honestly, the, the worst thing in my mind, right, is, is not the fact that we're introducing a timer to, to baseball, which is, you know, traditionally or historically been an untimed game. Um, it's having a clock on the field that does nothing because now it's just some ugly clock that's running and players are just spending most of their time figuring out how to make it ineffective. Yeah, I, I can agree with all of that. Um, when it comes to the timing between pitches right now, it's 14 seconds when there's nobody on base, there's 19 seconds when there's a runner on base. Um, I, I feel there's times if there's, especially if there's a runner at second and mm -hmm. if the pitcher shakes off his catcher twice, he, he's really, really up against it. Why those two times, why the 14 and 19 seconds and what is kind of the data and the feedback showing you on, on what might be the ideal amount of time? Yeah, so 14 and 19 is an adjustment off of what we did in the Cal League in the Arizona Fall League last year was 15 and 18. I'm sorry, 15 and 17, 17. Um, and what we found is, particularly with men on second, we thought, you know, uh, pitchers could use a little bit more time, pitchers and catchers to use a little bit more time. Um, so that's why I was extended to 19 in AAA. Um, with nobody on base, 15 was rarely a problem. I mean, almost never a problem. So you know, to, if we're going to give in one area to kind of take a second away in another area, we didn't think was going to be a huge problem, which I don't think it has been. Um, I will say that regardless of what the times are, it does, um, it does create a situation where, where teams can be a little bit more intentional or come up with some creative solutions for how they communicate and how they get to the pitch they want. Right. For instance, um, not a new idea, but I know when I played, we, sometimes we do stuff with like swipes, right. So if you get a pitcher, if you get a sign from the pitcher or from the catcher um, and you want a different sign, you can swipe up or swipe down. For an example of that is say the catcher gives me a fastball, which is a one, but I want to throw a curveball, which is a two. I might swipe up to a two and then throw that pitch. Right. So like instead of having to go through a whole sequence of signs, it's a way of kind of like communicating back and forth to make sure the pitcher has has the right pitch or the pitch that he wants to throw. And that's something we've heard from a number of a number of clubs are doing with their minor leaguers is you know, to be a little bit more efficient with a man on second base, instead of shaking to go through a hot, another whole sequence of signs, they're using things like swipes or, or other kind of ways to communicate and, and be a little bit more efficient with what they're doing. Um, as far as like the optimal amount of time, particularly when it relates to a rule that could be implemented in the big leagues, I think that's a little bit of a different question. Um, you know, we're going to have to do some analysis um, to figure out where we want to be that's going to, you know, help improve the pace of the game to where it's kind of worth it, right? Because again, you don't want a clock on the field that that isn't all that valuable, right? Then then it's not worth implementing a rule that's that's a big change, right? And kind of a fundamental change to baseball, um, and something that a lot of people are are against. And I understand why, right? From if you're kind of a traditional baseball fan, you, you don't like the idea of, of a clock on the field. I do understand. Um, however, a clock that's introduced or a pitch timer that's introduced to the game and that actually has an effect. Um, and improves the game. If you go out and see those games, I think, you know, most people would agree that they're played at a lot better pace. They're a lot more entertaining. And honestly, they look a lot more like the baseball of the eighties and nineties that, that a lot of people, these people of my age, people your age, I think grew up, you know, falling in love with and really liking. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's an interesting question, but it's something that we would look at very closely based on, you know, how, how it's gone this year. Yeah. And as someone who grew up in the eighties, I can tell you that when the 
when the strict enforcement of the pitch clock began on April 15th, it felt like it was, I was in a time machine that I was back in the eighties in terms of how the games were. I wanted to ask you about now we're now about six weeks in. we're recording this on June 1st. And at least for the Albuquerque isotopes, my team over the last week and a half. And I don't know if it's because we have had just way more walks or way more left on bases or mid inning pitching changes, or guys are figuring out how they can kind of manipulate it a little bit more. Our games have started to tick back up. We went from about 225 to 235. It seems like every game that we've had the last week is um, 250 to 310. Throughout all 120 teams, are you seeing mostly consistent or are you seeing the games start to creep back up? What's that kind of data showing lately? Yeah, mostly consistent, honestly. Um, I think we've sat right around the 235 mark, minorly wide for average game time. Um, you probably will see a little bit lengthening of games as the weather gets hotter offense improves more runs are scored particularly in, in a league like the pcl and particularly in a place like albuquerque which i've had the pleasure of pitching at um <laughs> and uh so it's it's it is you know you, you do have to keep in mind that right game time can be a function of of kind of offense as well right a, a lower scoring game a game with less walks game with less pitches is is going to be shorter than a game with more pitches more runs more walks etc so um, you know, as there's more base runners, as there's more pitches thrown, as there's more runs scored, you're naturally going to see, you know, a little bit of a lengthening of game time, even if the rule is, is still working exactly the way that it was previously, um, just with less offense. I've read about how when, when the pitch clock was, was used in the Cal League, that it led to fewer walks, fewer strikeouts, just more action last year. Are you seeing the same amount of data across all of minor league baseball this year? Or what is, what is the data showing about more action as a result of the pitch clock? Yeah, I, I think we have seen, if not a reduction in, in walks and strikeouts, at least things kind of holding steady, right? A, a little bit different comparison <clears throat> this year because we only had, you know, a week to 10 days of that phasing period when the timer wasn't used this year. Um, so, you know, you can look back to years past and, and do that comparison. It's a little bit difficult because player populations turn over so much and, um, you know, things like that. So, um you know, right now we are seeing an improvement in those metrics, which is great. Um, and hopefully the, the pitch timer is part of that. I also think that, you know, there, there is, there seems to be just an overall, um, you know, trend in the game that the ball's being put in play a little bit more. And hopefully that continues and just increases because it's something that I think we would all like to see. You touched on this earlier, but I want to transition to the two pickoff rule. And I want to start with this. Can you do an effective pitch clock? without having the rule that you can only pick over twice? Do they have to go hand in hand or can, or can they be separated? I think you have to have a limitation on the number of times that a pitcher can, can pick off or step off. Right. We, you know, kind of group those as disengagements from the rubber. Um, because otherwise if, if you can, if you can just step off whenever you want and get a new clock quickly, the clock just becomes useless. Right. So there has to you do have to address that loophole to have any hope of having a, a rule that works. Um, now, is two the right number? Is three the right number? Um, I mean, I know there, there could be some debate for that. Um, I think two works really well. I, I do. And if you do look back at how often pitchers pick more than twice in a given plate appearance, it's, it's very infrequent. Um, so, you know, while it is a limitation and something that I think makes some pitchers uncomfortable, um, many of them have, have kind of gotten used to it pretty quickly, at least the feedback we're getting. I know a lot of pitching coaches actually like it in some ways because it, it makes their pitchers be a little bit more intentional with what they're doing as far as their holds, 
um, getting their sign quickly so they have time to hold, maybe a hold and a pick, things like that, where you're really trying to keep the batter, you know, off balance. Um, I think it also kind of introduces a, a, a kind of an interesting, like strategic element to the game, right? If I was a fast runner and we do see some more athletic players doing this, right? Trying to draw some picks. So now you get in kind of a favorable situation where maybe you can take a little bigger lead because you're not sure that, you know, you're, you're kind of daring the pitcher to pick off again, or, you know, be a little more aggressive with, with your jumps and trying to, to, to steal a bag. So, um, we're, you know, I, I don't think anyone is, is opposed to a little bit more of a cat and mouse game, a little more strategy from base runners and, and encouraging the, those more athletic players to, to be a little more daring. Yeah. You know, I, I actually think that the two pickoff rule has the chance to have the biggest impact on, on the sport, but so far I think it's had the least impact. Um, I recall a game we had at Salt Lake a couple of weeks ago, and there was this really fast player named Monty Harrison for the beast, an electrifying player. And sure enough, there was two pickoffs. So he gets a bigger and bigger lead. He takes off. He steals second easily. Then he's at second and he takes off for third. There's a routine ground ball to the shortstop. Shortstop looks at him, throws to first. He never slows down and he scored. And to go back to the guy we used earlier, I felt like this was Ricky Henderson, right? He manufactured a run. It was a walk, a stolen base, and he scored from second on a ground out. And while that was not good for my team, <laughs> as a baseball fan, I loved it. I thought that it was super exciting, but there's, you, you, it's just not being used a whole lot, you know, from that element. Um, how much does the data show a stolen base? Is there more people trying to steal bases? Is, is the, is their success rate better? What is the, was the data show about how that might be impacting the sport? Yeah, the success rate has gone up a little bit, but not, not a ton, right? It's, it's a couple of percentage points. Um, and stolen base attempts, I think have been pretty consistent, maybe have increased a little bit year over year. Um, but I, I agree with you. It, it is something that I, I think could have more of an impact as players adjust to it more. And as, you know, front offices and, and, and some of those, those smart people, you know, understand how it can be used to their benefit and, you know, to win games, particularly at the major league level, right? Right now in the minor leagues, which they should be doing, is everyone is preparing and trying to develop to make themselves into a player that can be valuable at the major league level, right? So to the extent that there is there is no limit on pickoffs and step-offs in the big league level, um, it doesn't always make a whole lot of sense to prepare for that when you are in AAA or AA, right? You are trying to prepare yourself for that big league game. So um, I think once, you know, there if, or, or if it is in the big leagues and we see teams really committing to making the most of that advantage and trying, and trying to use that um, to win games and to manufacture runs and things like that, then only then will we see kind of the true impact of, of what's, you know, you know, what's available there and, and how teams are going to use it. All right. Let's talk about the automated ball strike system, ABS. This began on May 17th at the time that we were recording this. I think that my team has played six, 12, 13 games before the first game with it. I asked the home plate umpire if he has the ability to, if, if a call is blatantly out of the strike zone, if the, if the computer just messed up, whether or not he would override it. And the umpire said, no, we're going to call it the exact way that the computer in our ear tells us. Um, is there a time when an umpire does have the authority to override what the computer says? Yeah. I mean, in, in very, very obvious situations, right. If, if a ball bounces and for some reason the system calls a strike or, the pitcher doesn't even throw a pitch and somehow he gets a, a ball or strike call in his ear. These things, I mean, haven't happened at all this year, but you know, the, I think in, in those types of instances, the umpire would have the ability to kind of say, well, hold on, something is clearly wrong here. Um, and, and then, you know, we have some controls in place for the umpires to 
make sure to flag that with the technical folks that are there um, and, and make sure that, that nothing, either nothing is wrong or, you know, to fix whatever the issue is. What has been the feedback from your umpires overall? I mean, I know you can't get into every detail, but, but overall, what, what's the feedback that you're hearing from them? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? It's um, I think depending on level, you get a little different feedback. Um, from the Florida State League umpires, which Florida State League is, is obviously a low A level at this point, uh, has been for the last two years. Um, they, they like it actually a lot because it's, it's used as very much kind of as like a training tool for them. Right. Umpires have used kind of VR type technology in the past anyway, as, as training techniques. Um, but it helps them start to understand this pitch is a strike. This pitch is a ball. You know, how do I really like build my zone and, and build uh, my understanding of, of, of the strike zone and, and what pitches are in and out of it? Um, obviously as the umpires move up and by the time they're in triple a, they, they have good zones. They're very skilled umpires, not saying that, you know, the low umpires are not, but they're still very much developing. You know, I think there's a little bit different, um, perspective on it. We are, you know, rotating the triple a umpires. So they have some ABS games. They have some games where they're calling balls and strikes themselves. Um, so, you know, I hope they look at it as an opportunity to kind of like refine some stuff and, and really like lock in. Um, I think they're interested in, in the technology, but, you know, they also have pride in their ability to call balls and strikes. And that's, a, you know, something that has traditionally been, a, you know, a really important skill for, for an umpire, particularly a major league umpire. So, um, you know, we're trying to work with them and make the best decisions for baseball. They've been great um, and they've really been cooperative. But, you know, I think they're, you know, some, some you know, it's more like interest and in how can I use this to my benefit um, and then being thoughtful about how they take that into then games when they're calling balls and strikes. I think what I hear most from hitters is the size of the strike zone. So like I talked to a first baseman the other day and he said, well, he, first of all, he loves the larger bases. He feels like there's just more room to operate that he doesn't have to worry about any sort of collisions. So the plate is 17 inches. An extra inch was added on each side of the plate, which makes it 19 inches. But if any part of the baseball hits the strike zone, then it's a strike and a baseball is roughly three inches in circumference. And so that means that the strike zone is about 24 to 25 inches, which is pretty large. So why the extra inch added to make what's already a pretty wide strike zone even wider? Yeah. So, I mean, one, I would, I would a little, I'd argue a little bit with saying it's 25 inches just because if a ball crosses the 17 inch plate, any piece of the ball crosses the 17 inch plate, right. You would expect it to be called a strike in, in a regular game anyway. Um, so that's kind of why we use that as, as how we judge a striker ball um, using ABS. It, it's been what, what you find when you look at a called zone, even for major league umpires is that it is not to like 17 inches wide and, you know, exactly over the plate and, you know, certain height and width, right? Like actually a called zone for major league umpire tends to look more like an oval than it does a, a rectangle. Mm -hmm. um, and the surface area of that zone and how we define a called zone for major league umpires, it's at locations in which major league umpires call strikes at least 50% of the time. Um, it's actually bigger than the area of the ABS strike zone that's being used in AAA this year. However, the zone is, is very close in size. And what we did design as far as it being 19 inches wide is was meant to replicate very much how major league umpires and AAA umpires call balls and strikes to help, you know, the hitters and pitchers at that level, uh, you know, one, have an experience that kind of matches what their expectation is, but also helps them when trying to transition between, you know, being in AAA and the big leagues, right. Our, the last thing we want to do, um, you know, beyond putting guys in danger and, you know, health and safety and all those types of things 
is impact anyone's ability to get to the big leagues. And once in the big leagues, stay there, right? And, and compete and contribute. Um, it's hard enough as it is without any kind of experimental rules or, or, or just in general. Um, but you know, if, if we can try to help ease that transition and help guys be productive when they go up and, and hopefully stay there, you know, that that's ideal. Okay. So let's talk about the Florida state league and the challenge system that is there. I'm going to tell you what I believe is the rule from having talked to people I know in the Florida state league and please correct me. They use the challenge system Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So three to six games per week, they're allowed three challenges per game. It must come from the pitcher, the catcher, or the batter. They're not supposed to look into the dugout in order to get like advice or um, consultation or something like that. And then the umpire turns around to the press box and indicates in some way that they're going to challenge. The umpire gets told in the earpiece whether or not the challenge was successful or not. And it takes about five seconds. Anything that I'm missing about how that challenge system is working in the Florida State League? No, no, that's that's right. Um, obviously, after the umpire gets the call, he then you know makes sure to communicate to the field and both dugouts, you know, the result of the challenge and and what the new count is potentially or what the count is um, if the call's upheld. But yeah, that's that's it. And what are you hearing in terms of feedback from your umpires, from players? Um, one person I talked to said that the umpires are winning. I put in air quotes. A, about 60% of the time and that the challengers are usually safe or late in the game when there's something that's really on the line. What's the feedback that you're getting on that challenge system? Yeah, it's, it's been really positive. Um, you know, players, I think really like it. They like the ability to hold umpires accountable. Um, you know, if there is a pitch that they think is clearly called wrong, they are able to, you know, challenge that pitch and have it overturned. If that's the case, I think the umpires actually really like it. Um, one, it gives them an opportunity still to call balls and strikes, but then, you know, also get some real-time feedback. I miss that one. You know, I called that one wrong or I called that one right, which I think is, is probably pretty satisfying when a player challenges a call and you get to, up, you, you, you uphold your call and you're like, yeah, beat it. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been really positive. Um, even, you know, folks from the, the, the club side, right. The, the GMs of the, of, of the different teams down there in the Florida state league. They seem to really like it. It, it creates this interesting element um, where now when you watch the games and I've been in attendance for a couple of them, every time there's a close pitch, you kind of like feel this, like, is he going to challenge that one? You know? <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I, it, it, you know, to, I think as far as saving them late for the game, I think teams like to try to have some in reserve for, for more high leverage spots, but that's, I think good. Right. Um, they do get the three challenges. However, if they get them right, so if the call is overturned, they retain that challenge, right? So if you have three, you challenge a pitch, it's overturned, you still have three challenges. So, um, you know, it doesn't prevent uh, teams from challenging earlier in the game if there is something that's gone wrong. Um, but, you know, I think it's similar to replay, right? You, you don't really want challenge, low, you know, the, like uh, kind of insignificant pitches being challenged all that often because it just kind of slows the game down and, and the impact either way is kind of so minimal that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. However, you know, if you do have a mechanism in place that, you know, the most important pitches in the most important situations, um, ones that can really, you know, turn a game one way or the other, uh, you know, players have the ability to, to challenge and we make sure that those are called correctly. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of benefit there. It seems like the Florida State League is, is a really good place for, for the challenge system. When it comes to using the ABS for every pitch in the Pacific Coast League, you know, I've heard a lot of people around the league say, 
that, you know, you've got catchers who need to still keep framing pitches in case they get called up and you have umpires Mm -hmm. that might get called up. So why was the Pacific coast league chosen as the place for the ABS from May 17th on? Yeah. So I think that the biggest reason is we wanted to use ABS with major league caliber players, right. And, and AAA is as close to major league caliber as we have not actually being in the big league. So, you know, there's most, most of the players in AAA are either already major league caliber in many ways, and maybe don't have a position because they're blocked or um, haven't got an opportunity or maybe they're just working on some things. Right. But I think using ABS at that level with those players you know, really gives us an idea of one, how the system works, how it impacts gameplay, how it's received by the player population um, in, in a, you know, a box, a really big box that we need to check if this ever has a chance of, you know, being used in, in a major league game, which there's a lot of people who are supportive of. It's interesting. People keep asking me, do you like it? Or do you not like it? And I say, well, I, I need a larger sample size. I'm sorry. I'm not talk radio where I have to have a take and stick with it no matter what. So you know, most of the time it's seamless. After a while, you don't even realize that it's happening. And there's, you know, last night's game though, was probably the first time that I went, wow, that, that seemed different. You know, there was one pitch in particular, the catcher flat out missed it. It just went back to the screen and it was called strike three. And it was the end of the inning. And I know it's an outlier, just one pitch, but it was just sort of like this weird phenomenon where the catcher misses the ball and yet it's strike three. So I guess my question would be, how often are teams flagging pitches? What's, what's the, the, the feedback that you're getting in order to kind of work on the tweaks of the system as much as possible? Yeah, we've gotten a lot less flags um, this year than we even did last year. Um, I think we've made a lot of improvements, and I have to kind of tip my hat to all of the, the technical folks, you know, that work for Major League Baseball who are incredibly smart and capable. Um, they've done a really good job of making this something that works really well, right? It, it does. It's very quick, like you said. If you showed up at a game and didn't know what was going on, you probably wouldn't even know that it's that's being run in the background. Um, and uh, I can tell you, you that know, a lot I, of fans still yell, "Come on up!" What do you you know, like yeah, yelling it, at the it, umpire? Yeah, exactly right. Um, which is kind of the fans' right. I guess sometimes <laughs> people like doing that. You know, I have a hot dog, yell at the umpire. But um, it's uh, it, you know, it it is the the reception's been been pretty positive, right? There's been a lot less complaints, um, maybe than anyone even would anticipate. I think it, that is a little bit of a testament to how adaptable the players are, um, and how just how good athletes they are, right? Like you can throw so many challenges at them and they handle it, you know, with ease. So it's it's been, I think, you know, a a good first you know couple weeks with this. But there are certain things, like you noted that are a little different, right? It's the strike zone is set in an area. And if a ball touches that strike zone, it's a strike. doesn't matter if the catcher misses it or catches it badly. um, Or if it looks kind of funny and, and, you know, that is going to, that is part of using a solution like this is that you're going to run into some of those situations. We talked earlier about just pace of play and about um, just putting more, more action, fewer strikeouts, fewer walks. Are you seeing that the ABS can do that, will do that. What's the data showing in terms of the impact that ABS has on just providing uh, more action? Yeah, I think, you know, what we did last year shows that it could, it can be used and you can, I mean, to be a little bit more specific, right? You can kind of design a strike zone that is more um, conducive to getting the ball in play rather than a swing and miss, right? What, what you find when you look at, you know, millions of pitches is that the top and bottom of the zone is where you get most of the swing and miss. 
Um, and it's the side to side where you see a little bit more contact, not always good contact. Right. Um, but, but at least like the ball's in play. However, you know, when you get to a level like AAA and in the PCL with, with, with players who are, who are going to be major league contributors, um, you know, I think there's less of an appetite to experiment with a shape of a strike zone to try to get the ball in play more and, and, and really err on the side of, you know, having a strike zone in play that, that mimics or at least closely resembles what is in use typically at AAA and in the major and in the major leagues. So um, while I think there is that potential um, to use ABS in that way and, and right manipulate the strike zone uh, very easily, right? Because all it is is really updating an equation or some code um, that, uh, you know, I, I, I think that's, that's a benefit that we would have to kind of like consider down the road rather than something that we would want to like test with players, particularly those so close to the big leagues. Yeah, I, I think at least for now, I think this is my last question about ABS, and that's in terms of um, the height of players. And so Aaron Judge and Jose Altuve are always the examples that are used because of their differences in height, and they're both MVP caliber players. Uh, those are used in the ABS reference cards that we get. You know, I had one pitcher tell me the other day that from at bat to at bat, he doesn't have the same visual of what the bottom of the strike zone is that he used to. That, you know, he would see that it's here, but he's like, well, is it here or is it there? Um, and I've also wondered myself, there's still someone who's putting in the name of a player. If there's a pinch hitter and there's a drastic difference in their size, is it possible that the computer wouldn't know fast enough that it's a different batter with a different strike zone? So what do the technicians do in order to try to make sure that each player's strike zone is accurate and so that it's not such a drastic change from one to the next, if that question makes sense? Yeah, so we worked with... Um, all of the organizations that have clubs in the PCL to measure their players, right? And we actually sent a team of independent strength and conditioning coaches around during spring training to measure as many of the players as they could to get, you know, reliable measurements for height, right? Because the top and bottom are based on how, how tall players are. Um, and then, you know, that doesn't catch everyone. However, we do, you know, follow up with the teams to say, listen, if, if these numbers are wrong, you can correct them. You just have to tell us what the, what the correct measurement is. And we have to do, work on a little bit of an honor system, but I don't think anybody's trying to game the system at this point, particularly as guys are so close to the big leagues and are going to want an accurate strike zone. Um, and then for, for in, this, in the uh, example you, you gave about making sure the right batter is entered in the system when that batter's up at bat, um, we do have operators who keep an eye on that and are the ones that are making sure, confirming that, you know, um, Joe Martinez is up to bat. Joe Martinez is in the system. You know, we have, we have the right player, you know, all that type of stuff. So, um, there are some, there are some controls in place, um, to make sure that all of that's accurate and, and everybody has the right strike zone. Very interesting. All right. I want to talk to you about the shift. Uh, last year, there was one league that you could shift, but all four infielders had to have their feet in the dirt. And then there was another league where you could put, you had to have two on each side. This year, single A, both low A, high A, and double A, mm -hmm. the infielders have to have their feet in the dirt, and there can only be two on each side of the diamond. Uh, what, what is the data showing you in terms of what this is doing um, by, quote, banning the shift? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a modest impact um, on BABIP, so ball, you know, batting average on balls in play, um, particularly for left-handed hitters and most noticeable on ground balls. Right, which is kind of, I think, some of the stuff that you would expect. I know that's a little bit complicated. 
But what, you know, what I think we've also seen and some of the feedback we've gotten is that by putting these requirements in place is it creates better spacing that really allows for athletic players to have a little bit more room to kind of be athletic and make great plays and show their ability that way. Um, and probably puts more value on athletic players that can cover more ground because it's harder to kind of optimally position them, um, you know, based on where the batter is likely to hit the ball. So while I think the results on, on batting average on balls in play and BABIP um, are muted or modest kind of at best, um, there are some other, there are some other benefits, both, both in encouraging kind of more athletic players and giving them more room to, to make those athletic plays, but also kind of just reintroducing a, a more traditional aesthetic, which, which a lot of fans like and, and ask for. So, um, I mean, it's the, and it doesn't kind of go against what was expected, right? The, the shift, um, you know, even though a lot of teams employ it now, it's really a volume play, right? We, we, sometimes for baseball, we have the good fortune and the bad fortune of playing 162 games and thousands of pitches and lots of at-bats and all that type of stuff. So if you get, you know, a couple more outs because you are shifting than you would otherwise, um, you know, that might be the difference between a game or two here or there. And, and that maybe is the difference between, you know, getting a wild card spot and not being in the playoffs. So, um, you know, those small differences make a big difference in baseball, but it's hard to measure the impact in any, you know, given couple weeks, months, or even a whole, you know, one season. You know, at least for me, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to hear that changes are subtle because I don't think you would want drastic changes because then it's really changing the game too much. So it actually makes me feel really good that any changes for any of these rules are subtle because I think that's that's what you want. Um, it does lead me to um, one of the other experimental rules, which I do not think is being utilized this year, but it was last year. And correct me if I'm wrong here, Joe. And that is where the pitcher has to step off the rubber in order to throw over to first base. I think the example that a lot of us always use is Andy Pettit, left-hander, raises the leg, kind of hovers, and then might throw home or might throw to first base. Um, I know there was an enormous number of stolen bases last year in the, um, uh, the California league, the Cali league. Um, what is the latest on that? You must step off pickoff rule. Yeah, that's not being used um, anywhere. We actually used it for a half last year um, in high A. And then, like you said, it, it did lead to a, a significant increase in stolen base attempts and, and in success rate on stolen base attempts. And the, the reason why, we're not, you know, testing it again this year is, is for a number of reasons. One, the impact was maybe more significant than, than we would like, right? It was, like you said, you, you don't want huge changes. No, no one's trying to reinvent baseball. Um, it's really just trying to kind of uncover whatever that best version is. Um, two, uh, it was just not very well liked <laughs> by a number, of, a number of constituents. I think, you know, some players, you know, some position players liked it because it, it gave them a big advantage, but pitchers really did not like it. Coaches didn't love it, you know, things like that. And uh, I would say that the third thing, and probably most importantly, is that and kind of this the 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 limitation on pickoffs, which we talked about earlier as part of the pitch timer rule, are seen as kind of like similar ways at getting at the same thing. Um, and the one, the pickoff limitation was 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 much more preferred from pretty much everyone. It also is a, like we talked about, a very necessary element of the pitch timer rule if we want that to be effective. Um, so, you know, for those reasons and, and much more subtle as well, right? It, it hasn't led to this, uh, you know, huge spike in, in stolen base activity. Um, so, you know, for all those factors, you know, we kind of um, stopped using that step off rule um, and not testing that anymore and, and carry forward with, with the limit on, on number of times that a pitcher can pick off. It's interesting. Whenever, 
I talk to people and I say like, you know, well, what do you think? I think it's just natural human tendency that whatever is best for them is what they want, but what's best for you or what's worst for you may not be what's best for the sport. And so I think that becomes an interesting dichotomy of how is this helping me or how is this hurting me when it comes to right. deciding. And so, um, you know, for, for yourself and everyone else, the large number of people who are involved in this, what do you ultimately, here's the best way maybe to phrase this. When you decide which rules might make it to the major leagues, what are the things that are most significant um, that will make you decide, okay, we're going to send this to the major leagues, this rule? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I think it's hard to nail down exactly what's most significant. One, it has to work, right? If it's, if it's not working, then why would we do it? Um, it? It can't be something that is met with such extreme pushback that, um, you know, it, it, uh, it, it, I mean, for reasons why it like changes the game or it's just unacceptable in ways, right? There has to be um, adoption and there has to be, you know, um, players, coaches, front offices, you know, accepting that, that this change may happen. Um, I think it had to be, it has to be judged to be in the best interest of the game, uh, both for players and for fans. Um, and, you know, if you can kind of check all those boxes and have a conversation and, and be, you know, comfortable with, you know, what, what that change is going to do, then, then you talk about moving it forward. And it's something that's taken very seriously. And obviously these are not decisions that I make, you know, alone, I have some input to the decision. However, it's made by, you know, the competition committee, which under, you know, the, the, the latest agreement is a, a group of people that is both, you know, uh, owners as well as, uh, player representatives. So, um, it should be really interesting to see how those conversations go and, and, you know, what, what that group decides to do. Yeah. I think that's going to be the most interesting part is in terms of the buy-in, because I've heard stories of managers who have told their players, these are the rules, learn it. The faster you adapt, the more of a competitive advantage you have. And then, yeah. you know, I mean, look, there's a, you know, from being in the clubhouses your entire life, baseball players usually do not like new things. Right. And so um, it's a, it's a, it's a combination of how much do you buy in because you have to, and how much do you buy in because you want to, and how much pushback. And, and I think that's ultimately going to be a, a biggest factor with, you know, if, and when certain rules um, come to the forefront, um, I have to ask, which rule do you think is working best? Um, you know, it, it's, it's something that was even hard for me to like come around to, I think initially, you know, being a former player, but I think the pitch timer rule is working the best right now. Um, you know, it is, I, I always try to use like examples from other sports to help me kind of understand some of this stuff. But, you know, I, I think in basketball at one point, if someone said you're going to have a 24 second shot clock on every possession, they would have called you crazy, right? There was teams that won national championships running the four corners and, and slowing the game down. Um, so, you know, to, to me, this is, is not a, not a dissimilar change. Right. Um, and when you go out to the ballpark and you sit in the stands and you see the product that's on the field, I think you realize like, wow, this is, this is better. And when you do get that, that, that buy-in from the players, from the staff, from the umpires, you almost don't even notice the clock. It, it, there's very few violations that are called, you know, per game. Now it's, I think we're about half a violation per game. So less than one, right. Per game. Um, you know, the game moves quickly. Um, you know, it's, it's still baseball. It's just baseball that's moving a lot better, right? The, 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 the pitcher's right back on the rubber, the batter's right back in the box. Um, you know, guys are kind of, you know, <laughs> hustling around, getting on and off the field, things like that. Stuff that you, you know, you grew up, you grew up watching and being used to. And I think for some reason, it's kind of slowly been phased out of the game where now we, you know, play a much slower kind of more methodical game. So, um, 
it's working really well. It does require quite a bit of, of buy-in. It requires a lot of coordination and people <clears throat> doing their jobs well, like the, the clock operators, like the umpires. Um, but we've gotten a really a surprising amount of buy-in from the clubs um, to say, yeah, we're, we're in. We're going to make sure our players are, are on board. And honestly, the players have been great. There's some grumbling. There's always going to be. It's hard to adapt to change. You, you practice and you're trying to achieve something you know, given a certain set of, of rules, just like in any other profession, when those rules are changed, it, it's just another challenge. But sometimes I think players don't give themselves enough credit. They are world-class athletes. They're very adaptable and it's amazing how quickly they adjust. And honestly, they, they've been great in this. We're trying to get out to as many games as we can, talk to the players, get their feedback. Um, we are continuing to try to make refinements and make sure this is, you know, better and better as we look towards a potential, you know, major league implementation at some point. Um, but, you know, we have, uh, we want to do this with them and not, you know, in spite of them or against them. No, I, I think out of all of them, I would, I would echo what you said about the pitch clock from, from my perspective, because, you know, I, someone wrote to me on Twitter and they said, what, you know, how is, how is less baseball better? And my response was, it's still nine innings. It's still three outs. It's still four balls. It's still three strikes. It's less guys stepping out of the batter's box and readjusting their batting gloves and pitchers pacing around the mound. You know, um, I did a lot of college baseball. It's a 60 second commercial break in college baseball. The action moves fast and college baseball games still take forever. Right. But you know, it's a 90 second. <laughs> yeah. It's a 90 second commercial break in, in minor league baseball. And usually when I come back from a commercial break within five to 10 seconds, sometimes within two seconds, the pitch is being delivered. And, and I even think that that just adds to the overall aesthetics of it. When the, when the game just moves that way, sports are supposed to be timed. Is what I tell people. The, uh, anyways, I'm getting off on a tangent here. Um, but Joe, thank you very much for, um, you know, is, is there anything that you want to ask me before I wrap this up from base, what I've seen and what I've, I know that I've babbled a lot here, but from what I've seen from people that I've talked to. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I would just kind of ask for you to continue to keep me in the loop on stuff that you do here. Right. I think yeah. it's helpful for me to get, um, and for us here, I say me, but that's representative of our team. Um, input from everyone, right? We're, we're not taking this lightly. I, I certainly don't take it lightly. I have been extremely fortunate to build a, a, a career in, in baseball, both playing and now, you know, doing what I do um, here at the league office. And uh, I want to make sure we're making the best decisions for the game. And that's for the players, the fans, the folks who work in baseball, like I do. Um, so, you know, whatever input you have, whatever you're hearing, um, you know, continue to keep me and, and our, and our team in the loop because, more information, the better, the more feedback, the better, even if it's negative, because sometimes it just helps us understand where we may, where we need to make an adjustment. Um, so we're trying to make this as good as possible and, and, and keep baseball, you know, where it should be. It's, it's in my mind, right. The greatest game that's ever been invented and played. And, and I want to keep it there. And I hope people, you know, we can help it make, you know, bring it, bring a good version to the field that makes like other people interested in and can kind of share in that experience as well. All right. Well then I'll end with this. My suggestion, the pitch clock operator should be an umpire add another umpire to the crew. So they rotate around the bases. And then on the fifth day, they're the pitch clock operator because they should know it better than anyone else. And I think that'll make your umpires union happier because they're taking <laughs> away some of their authority. And I think it's a way to add jobs for them. And this way it's an independent person who travels with the crew and they can all work together. I like it. Sounds great. All right. We'll definitely consider that. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much uh, once again for your time, Joe. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Josh. That was Joe Martinez, and this is Life Around the Seams. 